Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. This week we present Mara Verhaden-Hilliard, Executive Director of the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund, who talks about the urgent need to aggressively investigate the security failure that preceded the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Journalist and author Sasha Abramsky who calls on Congress and the nation to hold Republican Party legislators and officials accountable for their role enabling Donald Trump's assault on democracy over the past four years. And Reverend Nathan Emsall, an Episcopal priest and campaigns director with Faithful America, who discusses his group's response to the role toxic Christianity played in supporting the attempted coup at the U.S. Capitol. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. For nearly two months, India's farmers have blockaded streets in New Delhi to demand the repeal of the new agricultural privatization law supported by Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Small farmers afraid of losing social safety net protections constitute the most serious challenge yet to Modi's Hindu nationalist government. The new law would link potential bulk buyers such as Walmart, Reliance Industries, and Adani Enterprises, directly with farmers, bypassing government-regulated wholesale markets and layers of commission agents. The protesters said a similar law eliminating middlemen in the eastern state of Bihar had failed to draw new investment and its farmers were worse off, often resorting to fire sales in the absence of organized wholesale markets. India's Supreme Court suspended implementation of the new market reforms enacted last September in an effort to broker a compromise between the Modi government and boycotting farmers. The court established a panel of experts to negotiate with the farmers, but protest leaders remained skeptical since most of the appointed experts support agricultural privatization. Farmer Union spokesman Rakesh Taket says the Modi reforms will allow big players and corporations to set prices and that minimum guaranteed compensation for farmers would disappear. For a generation, South Africa's black middle class has prospered, employed in government jobs, and living in comfortable homes in the suburbs. But their prosperity is now threatened by a budget crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic, and a stagnant economy. Over the last decade, public debt has tripled, and State Finance Minister Tito Mbwene has threatened mass layoffs of public sector workers. Most black South Africans live in poverty without secure employment and are forced to live in dire conditions in shanty towns on the outskirts of big cities. South Africa's government has proposed a 25% cut in public sector jobs, which could provoke a crisis of confidence in the ruling African National Congress Party and may lead black middle-class workers to back opposition parties like the Progressive Economic Freedom Fighters and Centrist Democratic Alliance. A legal challenge to the layoffs by trade unions was dismissed in December, but they may yet call for strikes. This dispute is likely the first in what may be a long struggle over who in South Africa will bear the brunt of austerity. A new report by Physicians for Human Rights and the Harvard Medical School 
found that detainees inside detention facilities run by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, were denied the most basic COVID-19 prevention measures, like hand soap. Many detainees fear reporting their COVID-19 symptoms out of fear of being placed in solitary confinement. Kathleen Peeler of Harvard Medical School says ICE violated its own guidelines for dealing with the pandemic. The report is based on 50 interviews with released detainees from 22 ICE detention centers inside the U.S. Researchers charged that ICE created conditions of unacceptable health risks and violated the constitutional rights of detainees. Social distancing was not practiced in detention centers, with nearly all detainees living within six feet of a cellmate. There are currently 16,000 people in ICE detention, with 487 who have contracted the COVID-19 virus. Public health experts and immigrant rights advocates have repeatedly called for the release of detainees who pose no public safety risk in order to limit the spread of the virus. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. The armed attack by thousands of President Donald Trump supporters on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th unsuccessfully attempted to prevent the certification of the 2020 presidential election winners, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and Trump's defeat. Wyoming Republican Representative Liz Cheney, one of 10 Republicans to vote for impeachment, blamed Trump for the violence that killed five people, including a Capitol police officer. She asserted that, quote, the President of the United States summoned this mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. Everything that followed was his doing, Cheney said. None of this would have happened without the President. Many questions are still unanswered as to why, with so much advance warning about the intentions of Trump supporters to bring weapons to Washington, D.C. and assault the Capitol, additional security measures weren't taken to protect legislators and police. Reports indicate that ex-military and police from around the country were among the Capitol rioters. The Partnership for Civil Justice Fund and the Center for Protest Law and Litigation have launched a massive investigation into the communications, planning, memos, personnel, logs, and other documents to fully understand the cause of the security failure and expose any law enforcement or high-level government collusion with the violent mob. Their goal is also to prevent future attacks by extreme right-wing domestic terrorists and white supremacists. Your reporter spoke with Mara Verhayden-Hilliard, co-founder and executive director of the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund, who summarizes the importance of conducting an aggressive independent investigation while resisting intrusive restrictions on civil liberties. We um, immediately sprung into action, actually, uh, on the same day as this uh, violent attack on January 6th, because we recognize that there are two very extreme threats that have to be addressed and have to be addressed quickly. One is the extraordinary present danger of white supremacists and militia members that are seated throughout law enforcement and the military. Now, when we saw this attack unfold, we knew immediately 
that this could not happen without support and collusion, not just from line officers, but from command officials up at the highest level. And uh, at the Center for Protest Law and Litigation and the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund, um, we immediately were identifying these as real concerns that have to be exposed because these are officers that are given guns, given the ability to deprive people of their liberty, um, do so, that are deployed against black communities across the United States, that are deployed against demonstrators across the United States. And here they are participating in basically uh, a fascist attempted coup against the nation's capital in Washington, D.C. And to allow them to remain in their positions, to not have them immediately identified and dealt with, is an extreme, extreme danger that we believe cannot be allowed to continue. And we knew what was happening at the Capitol. We could see, we saw as so many others did, the images of the line, some of the line officers who were uh, facilitating entrance, um, stepping back or opening barricades, officers posing for selfies inside. But moreover, Everyone who's been in Washington, D.C. and who's demonstrated here knows perfectly well the capacity of all of these different agencies in Washington, D.C. to come together and to the massive amount of both personnel, material, force, weapons at their disposal that they do not hesitate to use against peaceful, actual protesters when the peaceful protesters are standing up for racial, social, economic, or environmental justice. And yet here, you have a mob that was openly planning an attack on the Capitol, bragging in advance that they were trying to smuggle guns in, like everybody knew about this. So any claim that the police were, quote, unprepared or caught off guard is simply false. And we have to show what was actually happening behind the scenes, the decisions that were being made up at the highest levels to allow this attack to get as much momentum as it did and to get as far as it did. Since the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, there have been a number of officials, many of them at the FBI or former Justice Department officials, who say their hands were tied, that they couldn't monitor the the planning that was going into the armed assault on the Capitol because they didn't have, quote-unquote, a domestic terrorism law unlike laws on the books to monitor foreign terrorism. What is your concern about exactly the kind of legislation that may be debated and voted on soon and the threat not only to right-wing political activists, but to all political activists in this country who want to practice freedom of speech? We need to make it clear at the very, very onset that that statement that their hands were tied is 100% false, and it is exactly what we are talking about, about their cynical use of a calculated decision to allow what happened to happen, to make decisions as to inaction. Their hands were not tied. They were not restricted from using the very generous grant of authority and capacities that they immediately have at hand, and that they have not hesitated to actually illegally use against peaceful social justice groups, but here you have like an openly bragging armed mob talking about what they intend to do and the seditious conspiracy that they're engaged in and the violence that they wish and plan to commit. To say that their hands were tied 
The only reason they're saying that is because this is a grotesque, opportunistic use of this right-wing attack to now try and aggregate to themselves even greater authority to suppress social justice movements in the United States. And we have to call it out very clearly. That's why we're performing this investigation, because the facts must be made available so that we can show exactly what they chose not to do, what information they had. And it's already plainly available, the, the vast amount of resources and laws and capacities that they have that they did not use or that they chose to ignore the plain information that was in front of them and allow this to go forward. That was Mara Verhaden-Hilliard, co-founder and executive director of the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund. Learn more about the fund's call for an independent investigation into security failures that preceded the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In the aftermath of the failed January 6th Trump-incited coup attempt to overthrow the U.S. government, support for Donald Trump's historic second impeachment had been growing. And according to recent polls, a majority of Americans now want to see the former president barred from running for office in the future. But while once reliable Trump sycophants have begun to distance themselves from the disgraced former president, it's notable that even after the storming of the Capitol that killed five people, 148 Republican legislators, that includes 139 members of the House and eight senators, voted against certifying the Electoral College votes in one or more states that, if they had enough votes, would have overturned the results of the 2020 election. These GOP lawmakers who persisted in repeating and giving credibility to Mr. Trump's big lie about having had the election stolen from him have been increasingly condemned by their congressional colleagues their constituents, and hometown newspapers. Republican Senators Ted Cruz of Texas and Josh Hawley of Missouri have been specifically called out for their complicity in the Capitol attack. There are calls for their resignations or expulsion under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution that stipulates that if a person has engaged in an insurrection or rebellion against the U.S., they cannot hold public office. Your reporter spoke with Sasha Abramsky, a journalist, author, and regular contributor to The Nation magazine's Signal to Noise column. Here he talks about the need for accountability for Republican Party members who enabled Trump's assault on democracy over the past four years. This is entirely predictable. I mean, Trump is the most unsubtle politician maybe in American history. He wears his actions on his sleeve and he says what he's going to do, and then he does it. And Trump's basically been saying for the last several months, I will only accept an election result if I win that election. And he's been telling his supporters, if I don't win the election, it means there was fraud. And if there's fraud, it means we have to do something to take the country back. And his supporters have been taking him at his word. And his acolytes, people like Rudy Giuliani or these really extreme conspiracist um, attorneys like Lynn Woods and Sidney Powell, um, they, they've been sort of percolating with this ever more fanatical vision of what post-election America should look like. So it was very, very clear from early November onwards and arguably even from the summer onwards when Trump started trying to undermine the U.S. Postal Service and all the other things he did to try and muck around with the election, it was very, very clear that we were in a situation where the president of the United States was going to gin up his supporters to try to forcibly keep him in power. 
Um, there was no mystery to that. Anyone who didn't see it was only not seeing it because they had deliberately blinkered themselves. So my overwhelming analysis when I was watching this was, this is entirely unsurprising, and this really is the consequence of four years or five years even of the GOP leadership in the Congress essentially tolerating any and every extreme that Donald Trump could come up with for short-term partisan advantage. And, you know, there's a, there's a famous John F. Kennedy inaugural quote when he talked about riding the tiger. And he basically warned Americans then. He said, don't do it. Don't ride the tiger because anyone who does ends up in the belly of the beast. And that's what happened with Trump. All these Republicans thought they could basically control a demagogue. Turned out the demagogue was basically uncontrollable and uncontainable. And this country came nearer to an absolute political disaster on January 6th, arguably than it has come since 1865 and the end of the Civil War. I mean, it, it was that consequential. It, it really could have represented the unraveling of the American democratic experiment. Sasha, as you just outlined, Many of those politicians within the Republican Party were complicit in Trump's attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election, where Joe Biden won and Trump lost. What should be the consequences for these legislators who basically attempted to overturn the votes of millions of primarily African-American voters in big cities in these battleground states? Many of them, they continue to contest the election after the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. I mean, there clearly have to be consequences. And obviously, those consequences, there's no one-size-fits-all approach. And they're going to be gradated. So if you take Donald Trump himself, you know, first he was impeached. I would argue it's fairly likely he'll be convicted by the Senate and prevented from ever running for office again. But he really should be tried. I mean, you know, in broad daylight, he incited an insurrection. There's no doubt about it. So did Rudy Giuliani, who was talking about trial by combat. You know, for the top instigators of what really was a coup attempt, there needs to be legal consequences. When you're talking about people in the House and in the Senate, I think it depends who they are and what they did. So Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz not only voted in favor of challenging the Electoral College, but they orchestrated this extraordinary effort to undermine faith in the election. So I think there's a very good case to say that Hawley and Cruz should be expelled from from the Senate. And the same goes for at least a handful of the Congress members who, you know, it looks like they were in some ways cooperating with, collaborating with coup plotters. So at the very least, those individuals need to be kicked out of Congress. But beyond that, again, they must face legal consequence if they did, in fact, incite an insurrection. Um, and then you have the sort of 140-something or 130-something just run-of-the-mill, rank-and-file GOP members who went to the dark side when it came to this vote. Pragmatically, you can't expel two-thirds of the GOP caucus, but I think every single one of those people should be held to political account. And when they run for re-election in two years or in the Senate's case, four or six years, when they run for re-election, every single one of these individuals needs to be held to account by the electorate for essentially trying to destroy the constitutional system of government. And I think a lot of them will be. I mean, I'm under no illusions that, you know, in 2022, all of the GOP will be voted out of office. But I think there's room here to have a political realignment because there are an awful lot of people, even within the Republican Party, who are extremely uncomfortable with what's happened and extremely uncomfortable with the flirtation with fascism and with demagoguery and with street fighters that Donald Trump basically set in motion these past four years. That was journalist and Nation magazine columnist Sasha Abramsky.
whose books include Jumping at Shadows, The Triumph of Fear and the End of the American Dream. Find more commentary on the need for accountability for Trump and his GOP enablers by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On January 6th, insurrectionists invaded the U.S. Capitol, roaming its halls, rifling through desks, and threatening to capture and kill both Republican and Democratic elected leaders. The storming of the U.S. Capitol by domestic terrorists incited by Trump resulted in the deaths of five people, including a Capitol police officer. One phase of the invasion ended when Jake and Gelly known as the QAnon shaman who wore a fur hat with horns, gathered a group of white men around the Senate days to say a prayer before exiting. The men all bowed their heads meekly, as Angeli prayed in the name of Jesus Christ. That scene and others, like a giant Jesus 2020 flag flying from a Capitol balcony, and signs held by the rioters that said, Jesus is my Savior, Trump is my President, did not surprise the Reverend Nathan Emsall an Episcopal priest and campaigns director of Faithful America, a group which organizes online to reclaim Jesus from the religious right and white supremacists. In conversation with Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus, he spoke about his organization's response to the attempted coup at the Capitol and the role of Christians in combating what he calls toxic Christianity. Christian nationalism is this absolutely toxic and unfortunately spreading ideology that is neither Christian nor patriotic. It basically says that you cannot be a good American unless you are a Christian, and you cannot be a good Christian unless you are a patriotic, conservative, even right-wing American. This is what's being espoused when we hear people say that the Constitution is a divinely inspired document, just like the Bible, or that America is a Christian nation never mind the freedom of religion for people of other faiths and none. It's this non-theology theology, which has nothing to do with the Bible, and nothing to do with Jesus, has been a big driver of the Trump presidency, and Trump has encouraged it and his supporters attacking the faith of anyone who criticizes him. And that's what we saw on display during the failed coup. All these signs outside and inside that said, Jesus saves, Jesus is my Savior, Trump is my president, Jesus 2020 crosses, uh, a full cross is erected on the grounds of the Michigan State Capitol the same day. It's absolutely disgusting. It's not Christian. Uh, But unfortunately, it drives violence, because when you think you're on a holy mission from God, it's easy to become blinded to the facts. And so it's important for our faith to inspire our values, but we also still need to pay attention to the facts and pay attention to all of our faith's values, including nonviolence and love. And that's why what happened at the failed coup may have been done in Jesus' name, but Jesus wept. None of it was Christian. None of it was right or just or holy. Reverend Nathan Emsall, can you give us any specifics about what your organization is doing to combat this? Right now, Faithful America is running two big campaigns, 
One, we are calling on Samaritan's Purse and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association's boards of directors to fire Franklin Graham. And if board members can't persuade their colleagues to join them in firing Graham, they can at least resign an individual protest. Graham in December was tweeting that he believed Trump's election conspiracy theories. Graham has since blamed the failed coup on Antifa, which doesn't even exist as a real organization. And he has compared Trump to Jesus by saying that Nancy Pelosi paid 30 pieces of silver to the Republicans who voted for impeachment. He didn't say Trump is Jesus, but if you're claiming that Nancy Pelosi is the Pharisees and that the Republicans who voted for impeachment uh, are Judas, it's pretty clear what you're saying to Trump's followers about Trump himself. So Franklin Graham is as guilty as Trump, as guilty as Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz of inciting this terrorism. That's not Christian, and we need Samaritan's Purse, which does fantastic humanitarian work, to stop propping up Franklin Graham and to stop giving him cover to keep spreading these lies and, and appear somehow serious about it all. He is not a serious figure and shouldn't be taken that way. We are also looking hard at, an, at a website called Give, Send, Go, which builds itself as the largest free Christian crowdfunding website, sort of a Christian version of GoFundMe. Gibson Go has made headlines over the past few months for helping fundraise for Kyle Rittenhouse, the Kenosha vigilante who murdered Black Lives Matter protesters last year. And in the past couple of weeks, it's been fundraising for Henry Terrio, the leader of the white nationalist Proud Boys group. Terrio tore down a Black Lives Matter flag outside of a black church in D.C. and burned it like a KKK cross. He returned to D.C. to participate in the violent Stop the Steal rally, but was arrested as he left the airport, didn't even make it to the rally. Now he's fundraising on this website. We started looking into this allegedly Christian website and found dozens more uh, various examples of fundraisers to spread election lies and fundraisers to help so-called patriots buy armor and travel to far-right rallies across the country. Now, none of that is Christian. This website started to fund church mission trips. And that's lovely and innocuous, but it has really lost its way and ceased to be a Christian website funding white nationalism in Jesus' name. So we are calling on Amazon Web Services to stop using its cloud servers to host Give, Send, Go. The Washington Post reported on how bad Give, Send, Go has gotten. We have recruited so far 16,024 signatures and counting uh, to Amazon. Over 200 of our members have sent personal emails directly to Amazon Web Services filing abuse reports against this website. I expect that number will be 500 by the inauguration. Amazon has already taken down Parler and QAnon where they can. We think that they do want to combat white nationalism and just need to be alerted to the problem. Gibson Go is definitely part of that insurrectionist white nationalism, and it's heartbreaking that they claim it's in Jesus' name because this bears no resemblance to the gospel, and white Christians need to say that and take action on that over and over again. That was Reverend Nathan M. Saul campaigns director with the group Faithful America. Learn more about Faithful America's work countering the religious right by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, 
Please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in MP3 and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WREK in Atlanta, Georgia, Verdon Square Radio in New Providence, New Jersey, KUGS in Bellingham, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Scott Harris.